Well, good morning, Mosaic. Uh, well, I guess we can just name it. It is evening for me as I record this. Uh, my present self is sitting at home on the couch watching this live with all of you live. Um, well, this is my present current self, so maybe that's my future self. Uh, or since we're watching it together now, uh, the this is my past self. Uh, so anyways... What is time? It's all relative. Uh, listen, I, I jokingly start with this and make a light of it because we know this isn't normal. This isn't what we want. This isn't the way Mosaic functions. Uh, Mosaic has never been a, a type of community where we have a talking head on a screen, or nor have we ever been one that's about an online production. And so we just wanted to say that uh, we are trying to keep to our promise that we had at the beginning of this year, in the midst of all this, that we would sort of do whatever we could to allow whoever can or would like uh, safely to gather together to be in the space. Um, but yeah, so I'm at home. I tested positive for COVID. So did Jameson. We're doing well and no nothing to report on. Seems to be pretty mild so far. You can hear a little bit of my voice, but other than that, uh, we really don't have much. Jameson's got a runny nose and, and we're doing all right. So uh, but we're going to do it this way today, and I am uh, sad to not get to see all of you in person. You know, we're a small church, and we don't always have the ability to uh, cover lots of things when volunteers get thin and uh, lots of families are out because of either exposure or other positive cases. And so here we are doing it this way. But hopefully we'll be back together in person soon. And if you are online, uh, I'm with you. Feel free to text, uh, FaceTime me over the next few days because me and my boys will be stuck at home. So the sermon part of this, since that's what I'm uh, recording this for, we are finishing up our 21 days of prayer these first few weeks that we use as a way to kick off. In the next few weeks, we're going to have uh, some times that we spend in the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent specifically, and we'll talk more about that next week, what that means and why we chose that and where we're going. And then next thing you know, we're going to be into Lent. So be thinking about Ash Wednesday, the first Wednesday in March this year. Uh, we'll be there in Lent and in the Easter season before we know it. Sometimes as a pastor, I think in like 52 days of the year because it's 52 weeks. You know what I'm saying? It goes fast. Before you know it, we're going to be there. So, uh, but for now, we're wrapping up our 21 days of prayer in this time where we have, have started. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this, this is something we've done now together as a community for several years. Uh, we've focused on uh, what it means to kind of start our year together, giving ourselves to the Lord, to hear from the Lord. And as of late, we've tried to introduce these different topics or practices practices that we might have that would allow us to, to better understand and know what it means to be connected to the life of Jesus and to the divine uh, presence that is in and all around us. And I want to say this, that these practices, uh, oftentimes we say practice makes perfect, but I wouldn't say that. A, a book I'm reading on parenting and on uh, specifically male raising males and male spirituality, it, they talk a lot about with boys that the phrase oftentimes is practice makes perfect, but that's not always true. But practice can make improvement. 
And so I want us to think of that as we kind of hold on to these. So we opened with this idea at the beginning of this series that we're going to step into these practices, the silence and solitude as we give our time before the Lord. And the whole point of this was that practice can bring us, that this practice, this silence and solitude, and our other practices, not this one exclusively, but all of them collectively together, can bring us to this place of what we called theosis. That is a transformative process whose aim is likeness or union with God. So that's how we started the series. We saw there in that Sunday how that happened with Elijah and how God used silence and used Elijah's time in the wilderness alone to speak to him. We talked about how this was an honest space for him, right? Because silence and solitude in the wilderness, it calls us into an honest space to be honest about ourselves, to be honest about what we're facing. And we talked about how it's a slow process, not one that is rushed or hurried, but there's this certain uh, kind of cadence about the life that we live before God that it, it slows us down. This is kind of a tangential point, one that's sort of for free here, but that, it's a big point for me that I grabbed a hold of in that Sunday and something as we've kind of had this silence and solitude and even thinking back to some of our teachings and practices in my own life of Sabbath and these routines that we do where we slow down and we, and we focus on being and not doing. We focus on joy, peace, contentment, even in the face of grief and hardship. It does not mean that we don't grieve. Do not hear me say that, that we should dismiss all that. It does not mean that we never get angry, that we never get frustrated. Our emotions are good and they're God-given. We see God experience emotions. We see Jesus experience emotions. It's that in those emotions, there's a certain like kind of ease that we find as we kind of develop this theosis that we're talking about, this union with God. And I'm praying that so deeply for myself. That as we uh, have been singing through these 21 days, this, this song that we're going to sing here after the sermon, come away from rush and hurry. I've been thinking about how I can do that in my own life as I, I practice these things, as I practice slowing down and taking these intentional steps with the Lord, that I too can come away from that. And it's not just about a certain pace at which you move or talk, although I can do both very quickly. I texted Anna the other day and I laughed and I said, I'm going to take years off of my life by getting the boys ready for school and out the door. Because that 30 minute window from when it's like time to start to get dressed and get shoes on and get buckled up in the car and actually get there. Really, once we're in the car, I'm okay. But like, it's so much tension and anxiety, so much rush, this, uh, just right here, and uh, there it is. Like, I can't get it out of me. I've just been praying, Lord, don't let my boys know me that way. Don't let me push that onto them. Let them experience an ease. And listen, I'm type A enough that I'm not uh, trying to get rid of being on time. There's still an internal clock in me. There's one now ticking saying you're talking too long, right? Like, okay, move on with the point. But there's still an ease in which you can still respect people's time and uh, value their their uh, resources enough that you show up on time to places that you're a person of your word and your commitment and you do what you say you're going to do. But there's an ease in which you can try to attempt to accomplish that without this like just baseline anxiety that sort of hums, this anxiousness that sort of hums. And I, and I hope that the Lord can root that out of us. We moved on then in seeing sort of how this silence and this solitude, this time in the wilderness was practiced by Jesus himself. 
Uh, Kyle did an excellent job uh, in that second week walking us and kind of seeing, helping us see how Luke specifically in his gospel and with his Jesus, we see this wilderness theme and he uses the Greek word of wilderness over and over again. That Jesus gets alone, he's by himself, and wilderness becomes something much more than a physical place in which you can walk around in, but sort of this uh, spiritual idea that Jesus returned to, this uh, time to be alone. And in the wilderness, you are honest. There's this raw, there's this vulnerability that exists there, and we're being called into it. From there, we kind of moved, right? Week three, we took this moment and we said, okay, if we see that there is this idea, this thing that the Lord's calling us to, this theosis that we're trying to accomplish and that silence and solitude is one of the practices in which the church for thousands and thousands of years has encouraged us to partake in. And we see even Jesus himself doing it. And that's part of the reason why the church has picked it up and said, if Jesus did it, then we all the more need to be doing it, need to be practicing this thing to allow us to come into unity with God. Then what we said in the third week is that we see through Jesus's teaching and his encouragement that this practice can take us somewhere else. That it can begin to do something in us to where our praying is different, right? We begin to naturally embody what the Lord tells us to do, to pray with few words. We begin to see what James is talking about and what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is talking about when it's encouraging us to be people of few words, people that listen first and talk second. And so we see that as we do this, as we slow down, that it becomes, it helps us become better Brothers, sisters, roommates, students, friends, employees, parents, spouses, etc., etc., right? That if you begin to listen first, you begin to slow down, take a beat. Silence and solitude helps us do this. It has so many practical implications because this is the way it is with all these things. We don't pray just to pray. We don't read scripture just to read scripture. We do all of these things so that we can embody who Jesus is and extend his mission. It is about extending and embodying the mission and the will of God into the kingdom or allowing the kingdom to move through us into the world around us. It's about seeing heaven come here on earth as it is, or the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we conclude with that. I highlight all of this for two main reasons. So, One is that we are at the end, and I like us to wrap around so that you can see the flow and just kind of understand what we're doing. And, and just as it is with prayer during these seasons and during this time, year in and year out, we don't want to just leave this here. I'm hoping that as you see this progression, you see this understanding, as a last minute, it sort of takes grip of you and you say, you know what, like I do want to continue to to practice this. And I listed those ways at the beginning, uh, simple ways of riding in the car quietly, going for walks without your phone, turning your phone off of an evening, uh, maybe getting a hike in the woods. If you want more advanced things, there are places around here, uh, retreats you can go on, a night, a weekend. I've heard crazy things of like weeks, two weeks uh, in woods where people like go to do this spiritual practice. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I would love to, to, to do the night away. But anyways, I also say that because if there's a clear progression for the first three Sundays, uh, this is sort of an epilogue sermon, if you will. It's another very short passage, and it is one that we are going to read. Um, so hear these words. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. This is the word of the Lord. 
So let's get up to speed on what's happening here in Revelation. Uh, if you want to know more about Revelation, if this is confusing or, or you're uh, wondering what all is going on in more detail, obviously there are great resources. Bible Project, which I borrow heavily from to kind of help recap this, is a great starting place. Uh, we did a series on this in 2016, so you can hear baby Jonathan and Kyle from uh, almost six years ago now talk about these things. But let's talk about this. The book opens with letting us know that this revelation is from John, the prophet. And this revelation is a revelation for him of Jesus, a prophecy, a word of God that is bringing the whole Old Testament prophecy to a climax. And his intention is that this book or this letter, we now call it a book, but it was a letter then, would be passed in circular. It would circulate, right? Not necessarily in a circular, but it would circulate. It would be a circular letter to the seven churches. And now these are real churches, real people that John knows, that he's had contact with, that are in real situations in the first century, uh, you know, Christianity. There's a context here. And so it's important to remember that as we discuss what we're talking about in the Revelation. But don't get too caught up on that. A Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic numbers and images. And so uh, seven, sorry, seven is a real number and it's also a symbolic number. You shouldn't get too caught up on the symbolic aspect of this, okay? And so uh, we know it's real and that's important to interpret it. We also know it's symbolic. I'm saying don't get too caught up on the symbolic part of that. I said that incorrectly. We know that the symbolism is how the Jewish people and prophets communicated through their images. John is going to pick up in that vein and in that theme, and he's going to use all of this imagery and all of these prophetic numbers as a way to convey something. And specifically, he's going to use these Old Testament themes and ideas to bring us back to that, to bring the hearers of this letter back. It is not meant to be some sort of code to decipher some secret knowledge or the end of the world. So he writes this message to a real people using this Old Testament symbol symbolism and imagery. And what we see right away at the front is that there is this reward he's talking about that is promised to the people. And that reward he's drawing and kind of holding this tension line all the way to Revelation 22, where we see the new creation being fully established. And the whole of the book, in some sense then, from Revelation 1 to 22, is sort of John answering the question of like, how is this going to happen? What's this going to look like? And why is it so important? And so we move through the next few chapters. And uh, after we kind of meet the seven churches and hear God's message for them, we're transported into this throne room. It's Old Testament imagery all over it again, and it's everywhere. And all of creation is worshiping God. And this is the famous holy, holy, holy scene where they cry this out for uh, eternity. It's these images of this creation surrounding God and worshiping. And we see that God is holding in his hand a scroll with seven seals. And this is a symbolic image of the message of the Old Testament. It's uh, The scroll represents all about how God's kingdom will come here to earth as it is in heaven. And John, as he sees this scroll and he sees the seals on the scrolls, if you'd imagine this, and God holding it in his right hand, he begins to hear that there are none who are worthy to open it. And he's just heartbroken by this in this throne room image. 
But then he hears that there is one who is worthy. And there's this fun thing that John does in the Revelation where he hears something and then he turns and he sees something different. He hears and he sees. John hears that there is one who is worthy. That is the Lion of Judah, the son of David, this triumphant warrior king. And he turns and what he sees is a sacrificed lamb that was slain. This is a beautiful and confounding image when you really stop to think about it. That the warrior king that the Old Testament has promised, John is saying is being fulfilled in the lamb that was slain. And so there you see this sacrificed and bloodied lamb that is alive, but he still bears the marks of the sacrifice. He's bloodied and you see, like, I mean, if you see the image, like, I mean, there it is, that the neck opened up and yet he's alive. It's pointing us to Jesus being our ultimate Passover lamb and our the sacrifice for us and he being the one who is worthy. And it is in his giving of his life that has made him worthy. And John wants us to grab a hold of that. And so this lamb is the one that is ready to open the scroll. And so the next three chapters are about what happens when each seal gets open. And, and there's a ton of activity and miraculous and kind of outlandish things that are going on each time until the last one, right? And it, in this, we see that as each is open, we meet in the first four seals, the four horsemen, war, conquest, death, famine, and sort of represent all that is wrong with humanity, the basics of fallen human life. The fifth seal is open, and this is the voice of the martyrs, the, the persecuted. And they cry out to God, Oh, how long, O Lord, must we suffer? He says, just a little bit longer. And then there's a sixth seal that is open, and this represents God's response and his great day of the Lord to the voices of the martyrs. He says, there is a day coming. There's a day where you will be vindicated and made right. In between uh, chap- the end of chapter 6, which is when the sixth seal is open, and the start of chapter 8, which is what we read, which is the eighth or the seventh seal being opened, there's this kind of break in chapter 7. Then we pick up with the seventh seal finally being opened. Okay, so I want you to imagine John's in this throne room. He's weeping that there's no one that can open up this seal, this, this scroll that God has in his hand. And all of this activity is happening. All of this uh, miraculous stuff is taking place in this vision. And he's seeing all these things. And as John watches each seal be opened, we're getting closer and closer and closer to seeing what's actually in this scroll. What is the fulfillment of all things? And the seventh seal is finally open. And what we're left with is silence. It says, for 30 minutes, all of heaven was silent. It's unbelievable. It's like the opposite of what you would expect to happen in this moment. We're finally there. It should be jubilation. It should be like outpouring of excitement. And it's silence. For 30 minutes, heaven sits quietly. Now, this reason for silence, some would maybe say it's confusing, it's debated by scholars, and so I'm going to quickly run through just a handful 
It's about eight reasons that uh, one scholar in a commentary on Revelation listed that different people have kind of postured or postulated or put out there that might be why there is silence. Silence uh, is in heaven is so that the prayer of God's people in the coming verses, verses three through five of chapter eight, may be heard. It's a temporary uh, ceasing of the revelation with silence in heaven rather than on earth, meaning that for some reason there's a pause in the revelation that's happening. A dramatic pause signifying the awe and the dread as the heavenly host await what is coming in the day of the Lord and the final judgment. There are uh, one scholar or a handful of scholars suggest that it is a repeating of that kind of initial or original silence that greeted the first creation that was found there at the very beginning of time there was a silence before creation began and that this is a uh, silence that is awaiting the recreation of the world it's an indication number five that the seal visions are now complete uh, it's a liturgical silence, uh, something that we practice, a way of worship, something that the Jewish people would have been incredibly familiar with, and the silence of the condemned as they await divine judgment. And number eight, an intense expectation of intervention from God is forming, and so they wait for God's action. If you've known me for more than uh, maybe, oh, I don't know, two conversations, you might have a good guess at what I'm going to say here. I am not picking one of these. Uh, unfortunately, it can't be a both and or an either or because we got multiple options here. But what I will say is that none of these things need to be mutually exclusive from one another. I think we can take a little bit or some of all of these things away with us, right? Obviously, we get the moving power of heaven being silent to hear the prayers of God's people. We understand this dramatic pause that is happening before the climax of all of these seals being revealed. We know and have practiced liturgical silence. We get that. And so we understand it. And so yet what we also know or see is that some of these might stick out to us in just a different kind of way. And for me, there are two, and I'll just name them real quick. There are the, the image of this silence that happens before the recreation or the new creation that is promised in Revelation. Something about that sticks with me in the silence that they're holding their breath before judgment. Now let me start with the second. The silence before judgment is all over the New Old Testament. There's all of these places where you can go through and you can see where silence, some people mark back or right after judgment is pronounced too. The, the, the silence in the Red Sea, moments where they would practice silence before the lambs were sacrificed and after the lambs were sacrificed. And I think that sticks out to me because for this year, 2022, normally I start out with some outlandish uh, Bible reading, quiet time thing that I put way too much expectation and hope to. And what I uh, ultimately end up doing is falling short because it's unrealistic and I can't keep up. So this year I was like, I'm just going to start simple. My goal for 2022, when I have a quiet time, when I have a moment, just a stillness, read a psalm or two and read a chapter or two from a gospel. And my goal is to just see how many times I can read the book of Psalms and how many times I can go through all four gospel accounts. And as I've been reading the Psalms, you see this idea of the psalmist begging for judgment, and yet he never does so 
in a way that seems to be like vindictive. Because oftentimes what you see is that he longs for the righteous to be judged. It's the wicked that will eschew judgment, but the righteous, they know and long for judgment, okay? And so I think as I was reading that and seeing this theme in the Old Testament that they expect to be judged themselves and they know that it is good to be judged and also they long and expect for the day of the Lord's judgment. I think we so easily kind of push back on the judgment of the Lord in that final day and that righteous judgment that will come. And so seeing that in this moment of how that's a theme through the Old Testament, that there was silence before the judgment, I thought about what silence and solitude means and how we're talking about this, something that silence and solitude does is it brings us back to that honest place where we can rightly judge ourselves before God. And, and that it shows to us and it brings conviction to our heart. So it's something that I think that we can see here. That's true of all of creation. It's true of the Old Testament people that they silence themselves before judgment before God and they welcome it. And I think it's something that we could pick up from here and to hold on to and to welcome. And the other thing is, is the way that silence sort of bookends time and creation. That at the beginning, you see this silence before the initial creation of all things, this primeval silence. And then you see this silence at the end of creation before the new creation begins. And as we talk and sort of conclude our time of focusing on silence and solitude, I just think it's a natural kind of invitation into it when you understand that like it is that silence at the beginning and at the end that it bookends all that we know. Time as we have known it is bookended by silence waiting on the action of God. And that's really what we're being invited into as we conclude. We're, we're being invited into a moment and a space of silence as we wait, as we find ourselves honest before God, being uh, understood, being rightly convicted, uh, allowing ourselves to begin to be honest about our sin as we experience the grace of God in the wilderness and in silence and solitude, as we're able to be honest about our fears as we understand the, the grace and the kindness and the hope of the kingdom. When we are silent before God and we're able to begin to be honest about the wounds and open up and to allow ourselves to experience the new creation and the recreation that God longs to offer to us. He is our beginning and our end, our alpha and our omega, and it is always he will, who will act on our behalf. He set time into motion and he will complete it. He will be good and faithful to complete that which he has begun, and he does it in and through us. And I love that picture, the way silence is on both sides. And so as we conclude our series and as we take a moment, this video is going to end, we'll sit quietly We'll prepare our hearts and our minds for communion. You have the cups. If not, you can go grab one. Hold on to that cup. Process what it means that Christ, the sacrifice lamb, that you're holding its representation in those elements of the bread and the cup, the body broken, the blood poured out, that you're holding the sacrifice lamb who stands worthy of all glory, praise, and honor to open and to be our knowledge, our insight, our understanding of the fulfillment of God's desires. And as he invites us into that, that we know that it is he who has gone before us and goes behind us, that he has completed all that we need to know. And he is, he's inviting us into that work. And that is what we celebrate in communion is the work of the alpha and the omega that is fully realized in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we invite you as you partake in communion to hold on to these elements 
Kyle will lead you in the receiving of the elements after they play this next song. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can um, still gather in some small way, that we can still be connected and be a part to one another. And I ask and pray in this time and in this moment that you would just allow us to experience your goodness and your mercy, that we would be able to, to step into what it is you're calling us to, to be honest about ourselves, that we would, we would be honest before you, that we would be judged before you, God in order that we might be able to find ourselves uh, stepping into the rhythms and the life that you offer us and that you have for us, God. May this moment of communion as we receive the elements bless us, Lord. May it overwhelm us and renew our faith and our desire to follow you, to be caught up in these eternal currents of life and of hope that you are doing in and around us. May we always remember and worship the Lamb who was slain. It is in his name that we pray. We love you. Amen. Thank you, guys.